From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is Episode 7, Why Religious Freedom Matters. When professors and practitioners talk about American foreign policy, they tend to distill its essence down to two elements, realism and idealism. More often than not, these isms are pitted against each other and portrayed as two extremes on a continuum. In the parlance of international relations theory, the separate schools of realism and liberalism reflect this divide. In the world of Washington politics, the tension between geopolitics and human rights reinforces this characterization. To be sure, there's ample evidence for this. Just look at the trade-offs the United States makes every single day in foreign policy. There certainly are moments when standing on principle curtails geopolitical advantage, and instances where realpolitik willfully ignores atrocities. But is idealism always at odds with realism? And is it really true that these elements at their core present a zero-sum choice for policymakers? Americans have wrestled with this question for decades, but American elites are stuck with old paradigms that don't get to the heart of the issue. On a personal note, I think back to the first book I read in grad school, Kenneth Waltz's Man, the State, and War. The book posits three levels of analysis for foreign policy, elite leaders, governing institutions, and the international system. These lenses of analysis are certainly helpful, but they overlook a realm that doesn't get talked about often inside the beltway, the spiritual realm. I realize you may think that an odd angle to take in a podcast about great power competition, but when you consider the centrality of religious freedom to human rights, it doesn't seem so strange. And today's guest not only agrees, but takes that argument one step further. Advancing the cause of religious freedom can actually alleviate the tension between realism and idealism in quiet but surprising ways. That guest is Ambassador Samuel Brownback. He served as the Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom from 2018 to 2021. He previously served as the Governor of Kansas, and prior to that represented Kansas both in the House of Representatives and in the United States Senate. Ambassador Brownback, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to do it, Michael. Happy to join you and glad you're interested in this topic. Indeed. I think there's a lot of good stuff to talk about here. So before we get into your service on this issue of religious freedom 
human rights and how it connects to geopolitics and the specifics and stuff, I, I want to start by zooming out at the conceptual level. I think when we in the Beltway in Washington tend to think about foreign policy, more often than not, we segment human rights into this silo and geopolitics into this silo with economic policy in one lane, defense relations in another, and then human rights is just you know somewhere off in the corner. But the, the strange thing is when we as Americans talk about ourselves, our identity, we lead with values and we lead with principles. Yeah. So it seems almost as if there's this cognitive dissonance in the middle of our foreign policy. So I want to start by asking you, what do you make of that? Why, why is it that you think we tend to approach foreign policy that way? You know, I, I think it's almost this sort of hierarchy of needs driven into a foreign policy setting. So, you know, our first issue on foreign policy historically has been security. Uh, we're just we're interested in, you know, what does this mean to our security? And then kind of our next issue is, well, what's it mean to our economy? So we're kind of interested in trade. And then the third issue is kind of, well, what does it mean to our values? So once I'm safe, once I've got food on the table, now let's talk about kind of these deeper moral issues now that I've gotten my, my sustenance for my body taken care of. I think the problem of it is, is that's tended to put human rights in this court of kind of side eddy or boutique issue when, when you're actually dealing with foreign policy. It's like, okay, if we get to it, it's good. But let's really talk about security. Let's really talk about economics. And yet, as you point out, most of us as Americans, we would look at ourselves and say, no, we stand for human rights. That's what we really, that's what we really stand for. I mean, we want a good, strong economy. We want an open economy. We want good security. But you know, when we look at ourselves, you're right. We think about human rights. So that's why I've been pushing lately is that particularly a topic like religious freedom, move into the mainstream of foreign policy, not one of these boutique or side eddies. It needs to kind of, it needs to start flowing into the main current of it. And it has this enormous impact on security and economy. So it's like this, this really plays well together, but I think we've just started to make the sell on that to the broader foreign policy community. I think you're right about that, but I think you perhaps more than anyone in recent memory have laid a lot of groundwork in this area. And that's actually what I want to ask you about next. You made some remarks during your time when you were serving as uh, the ambassador at large on this issue. I, I want to read them for our listeners because I think it's, it's not only counterintuitive to how we approach foreign policy, but I think there's a lot of insight that, that gets overlooked from a lot of corners in DC. Quote, we see a correlation between countries that respect religious freedom and those that have greater economic prosperity. I believe, you, you speaking here, I believe that when religious freedom flourishes, it releases the spiritual capital in a nation, opening the doors to greater economic opportunity and realization. Where religious freedom flourishes, ideas flourish, end quote. This concept of spiritual capital is a really interesting concept, and it's the type of word that you'll never see in an international relations textbook. You'll, you probably won't hear this term brought up in congressional hearings that often. Could you unpack that concept of spiritual capital 
and that interplay between the, the values of religious freedom and how that impacts the material aspects we tend to think about more. Well, I mean, just look in your own neighborhood, look in your own community. How many religious-based hospitals do you have? Kansas City, uh, one of the biggest systems there now is the St. Luke's hospital system. See, I wonder if that started as a religious institution or not. St. Luke's Hospital, it probably did. Look at schools, who started the first schools. Uh, it was uh, religious people. Even today, religious people have an abundance of schools that are continuing to meet when the public schools shut down. That's what I'm talking about on spiritual capital, is you, when, you, when you allow people who are driven by their faith to, to flourish, and you protect them. You don't say, okay, we like your faith. We don't like yours. We just say, you know, you come on in and you can bring your faith in and you practice peacefully, do whatever you want. It unleashes this spiritual capital. So you get hospitals, you get schools out of it. You, you hopefully get prosperous businessmen and women who are driven by their faith to then be very philanthropic. I, I saw this in a very micro example in Uzbekistan three years ago. I'm there, I'm, we're working to open the country up spiritually. I stop and see a church, which is kind of a rare thing in Uzbekistan, a church. And here was this man in the back that he was cleaning grapes. And I saw him and I was kind of visiting with the pastor and talking to him briefly. And the pastor said, yeah, this guy was a drunkard on the street. He was doing terrible. Uh, he was a street person. And, you know, we kind of started working with him. And now he works here at the church doing some tasks, but he's off of alcohol and he's out helping people now. And you're going, that, that's it. That, that's it. It's that guy. His life is no longer in prison to the alcohol as long as he doesn't go back. You can say, well, he's not doing much. We didn't release much capital with him, but you multiply that times millions. Now you've really unleashed something very, very positive. Building on that instance, could you talk about your service as ambassador? I want to start by asking you about a country uh, that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and frankly, everyone is talking about, which is China, and the question of religious freedom in China, which for a long time under the Chinese Communist Party has been heavily repressed. The biggest example of this right now are the Uyghurs, the uh, ethno-religious minority in the westernmost territory of Xinjiang, which you have spoken about at length, both in government service and out of government service. The most recent instance of Xinjiang being in the news came up earlier this week, actually. There was a gentleman who is a partial owner of the Golden State Warriors venture capitalist, and he's not the first... American billionaire to downplay the significance of what's happening to the Uyghurs, but he, by my recollection, was the first to say publicly, I just don't care about what's happening. So there's, there's this one question of how do we build religious freedom abroad, but then there's this also question of public will here at home and how that impacts the decisions that politicians make. So I, I want to get your take on how do we build a critical mass of support at home for these issues so that there's enough consensus to really act with a lot of precision abroad? You know, I, I was actually very encouraged by the reaction to what he said, because there was a lot of blowback. 
uh, to what he said. I put a tweet out on it and got thousands of of uh, hits on it and put because it's and to me that was very encouraging because on a foreign policy issue a lot of times it's kind of tough to get Americans to care about it. I mean, their lives are busy and we got a lot of stuff going on and everything like that. But people have tuned in enough now. And the, the big thing they're tuned in on is China and being an atheistic, communistic country. They know what the American people know that my mother talks about this. My 88-year-old mother in Garnett, Kansas, talks to me about this and, you know, and kind of lectures me, said, I told you guys that the, the Chinese communists weren't good. And you guys went ahead and made all these deals. And I'm kind of going, yeah, you're right, mom. And she was. I mean, we kind of all thought they would evolve away from communism and they would become democratic capitalist eventually. And then Xi Jinping comes along. That didn't happen. So I would, I've been actually encouraged by this episode. Now, what it also reveals that I think is very troubling is this nexus and tie between big business and Chinese communist. And they both tend to, to lean towards this, okay, we want to set faith and religion aside. We don't want it messing with anything. We don't want it messing with a good business deal. China, you produce everything that we want. We'll import it and sell it to everybody, and we'll all make some money here. And you're going, no, there's something deeper here. There's something more important here. And I think what we've got to do is really confront that nexus between big business and the Chinese communist and say that this is not good for America, and it certainly isn't an American value that we do that. And I, I think that's really the issue to hit it. I'm asking people, I'm asking these big Western companies that are supporting the Olympics to pull out, pull out of these. I mean, if, if we, the United States, were doing a genocide and having the Olympics, these companies would be going crazy about how terrible this is. And yet they'll look the other way because the Chinese actually would take a strong economic stand against the company if they said something. And you know, where should you get some backbone? Be like the Women's Tennis Association and start and pull your tournaments out that when one of your players got mistreated. I mean, I, I'm I really I'm hopeful, honestly, that these Olympics can actually be instructive as we talk to ourselves about how do we express our values when you're dealing with a country that has an ongoing genocide. So uh, an interesting case to move from here, North Korea, some similarities to the China case, right? There's longstanding atrocities against religious people in North Korea. Unlike China, the, the, the North Korea lobby in the United States isn't, shall we say, so prevalent <laughs> for good reason. But there's this interesting, strange dynamic with North Korea policy as well. There tends to be this push and pull between should we engage the Kim dynasty again? Should we sanction them? How much should we sanction them? Should we leave the door open to negotiation on the diplomacy side? All this stuff. This was front and center during the Trump administration. We're seeing it again in the Biden administration, starting to come to the surface of how do we balance engagement with punitive actions? So with a regime like North Korea, the issue isn't we have billionaires in America who think Pyongyang is the best capital in the world. It's, it, it almost seems like, uh, at least from my vantage point, 
there's this lack of clarity of what we are trying to achieve and how we're going to try to achieve it. This has been a longstanding foreign policy challenge. And you, when you were serving as a senator, were one of the biggest leaders for human rights legislation on North Korea. So how do you see this stuff when you have a huge foreign policy problem like North Korea? Where does religious freedom fit into that? That's where I actually see the connection between China and North Korea and the the advantage to us on foreign policy to confront a country on their dismal human rights record. North Korea is horrible. It's one of the worst places in the world. And goodness gracious, you know, how many times did we see Charlie Brown try to kick the football from Lucy and every time she pulls it out? And you're thinking, okay, is he going to go for it next time again? And that's, to me, North Korea. Like, guys, how many times have we tried this? How many times they pull the football back? And we don't confront them on the very thing that is the most egregious of what they do. They have concentration camps that you can see on Google Earth. We have eyewitness stories of people and the atrocities, the terror. We have human trafficking stories of women getting out of North Korea that when I meet with them, you're just going, this is deplorable. And why don't we go right at the very weakness that they have, which is the same weakness that China has, which is on religion and faith. So China wants to be the dominant player in Africa and the developing world. That's really what they're going for. And they want the resources and they, you know, they want these countries to to tie in with them. But Africa is a very religious continent between Islam and Christianity and some other faiths uh, in there too, but particularly dominantly Islam and Christianity. This is a very religious continent. And why don't we go to the Muslim countries in Africa and say, you know, in China, you can't name your child Muhammad. It's against the law. They've got a million Muslims locked up in concentration camps trying to as they would say, bleed the Muslim out of them. They're okay if they're Chinese citizen, but not Muslims. And look at what they're doing to the churches. My goodness. I mean, they just destroy them. They lock the pastors up. They are at war with faith. Why don't we use this as a front and center foreign policy issue in all these countries that we're competing with China on saying, you know, look, you're looking at a superpower competition. You're looking at a new Cold War. You got the United States heading one team, China heading another team, which team you're going to be on. And here's what China says to you about your faith that's very important to you. And in essence, you can't practice it. We are opposed to it. We're atheistic and we're militantly atheistic. That's why I, I think particularly on North Korea and China, if it were me, my top foreign policy push against them would be human rights and particularly religious freedom because it really differentiated us from them. And and we're with where most of the world is. 80% of the world moves by their faith. They have a faith within them. And we're with the people of faith and the Chinese government, the communists are against the people of faith. And just one final quick point. I love the Chinese people. I have a Chinese daughter. I have been to that country a number of times. I can't go now. I'm blocked. They they pulled my visa. But I love the people. And I think it is a fabulous country. And I think it's a fabulous culture. This Chinese communist is they are wrong and they're evil. To push further on this issue, because I think you're touching on something 
so critical to the practice of foreign policy with China. On the left and the right in America, there are two voices that are coming out that cut against this argument for putting religious liberty and human rights at the center of what we do with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. On the left, there's the progressive wing that is arguing to prioritize transnational issues like climate change. The argument being you can't save the Uyghurs if you can't save the world. We need to fix climate change before anything else. On elements of the far right, you're starting to notice, and not in the mainstream, but at least in some pockets of influential thinkers, that this notion that the United States is a post-constitutionalist country, that there's very little to conserve in America, and how can we stand for freedom abroad if freedom is crumbling here at home? How do we make the argument for the relevance of religious freedom and more broadly for the moral authority of the United States to enter into these conversations? not just with foreign audiences, but even here at home? Yeah, great question. You know, we are always a work in progress. I'm not, I'm not satisfied with my country, and I think there are things that we've done wrong. I led the, the charge to do an official apology to Native Americans in our country. We passed it into law nine years ago. We need the president to speak it out. We need to address what we did in Indian boarding schools. But that's the beauty of America is that we can say, okay, look, we got that one wrong. We broke these treaties. We did the Indian Removal Act. We shouldn't have done it. We apologize for it. We recognize it. We apologize for it. We repent of this. You'll never hear that coming from the Chinese communists. That's, that's how we're always a work in, in motion. And then on the climate change issue, which I think there are significant things for us that we need to be working out. And I, I kind of I get onto my own side here that I think we need to propose a, a good environmental agenda. We increased wind energy in my state while I was governor, tripled the size of it. And we did it off of a federal tax credit. There was no requirements, no subsidy at the state level. You had a federal tax credit and we made opportunities for people and boom, you got all this investment. My point in saying that is that we can address the climate issue. We have been addressing the climate issue. We're going to address the climate issue. You're not going to persuade China by giving up on human rights. They're not going to say, oh, okay, you're going to stop talking about the Uyghurs. Uh, we'll stop building coal-fired power plants. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, weakness to them is just something to be exploited. I, I go back to Ronald Reagan on dealing with China because he really saw it early about the Soviet Union. What you have to do, and I'm, I'm quoting Vaclav Havel on that, you've got to call evil by name and call it out. You speak truth, you call out evil by name. And I think we've got to do that with the Chinese communists. And that's going to get us further on anything, just following that basic principle. Moving to a third case study, Burma, a country that is often overlooked, but is smack in the middle of issues of religious persecution. There are many indicators that suggest that what's happening in Burma to the Rohingya, the ethno-religious minority being persecuted there, multiple signs indicate that this very well could be an ongoing genocide. Certainly crimes against humanity 
yet multiple state departments and administrations, both Republicans and Democrats, seem very hesitant to lean in on this issue. And, and there's a lot of backstory here as well. The Obama administration had a big push in 2015, 2016 to normalize relations with Burma when there were early indicators that maybe it's becoming more democratic. With hindsight, that was clearly a mistake. And we have, as of last year, a military coup and a junta ruling this country now. And the Rohingya are certainly no better off because of that. So for a country like Burma, hardly in the headlines, most Americans probably are not even aware of these atrocities happening there. What are the policy options for a country like that that tends to fall through the cracks so easily? You know, Burma to me is, it, it's a sad case in forgetting our near-term history. You got huge religious persecution, the, the Muslim Rohingya, you got the Christians in the North that are persecuted and kicked out and really stateless. And you actually create a big trafficking pool of young girls by the Christians being stateless and then trafficked into uh, Bangkok. I toured and met with them years ago. And it's just, it's a tragic case. You got a demand in Bangkok and a supply that was created by this stateless situation. And it was just horrific. But we, we actually had a legitimate policy move in the Jade Act under the Bush II administration that actually worked. It put pressure on the commanding generals in the place. They started seeing their pockets being hit, and they let Aung San Suu Kyi in for a power-sharing agreement. Now, that didn't really work, and the generals ended up kind of using her to hide behind her Nobel Peace Prize, and she went along with that. Unfortunately, I was disappointed that she would. But my point in saying all this, we've, we've got one that's worked on this country already. And it was, a, it was a good, targeted economic piece. There's one, to me, that's solvable. And it's just been our kind of lack of attention or focus or even studying our near-term history. Or worse still, and this happens a lot in foreign policy, that was a Republican group that said that, so therefore it must be wrong. You know, and to me, if Republican or Democrat, if you find a way that works, follow the trail, go do it and give them credit for it. Say, you know, they got that one. Good. Let's go on. Final question for you, sir. And I think this is a thoughtful note to conclude on because it's a recurring challenge in foreign policy, which is if we push too hard on religious freedom, if we, if we lean forward a little too much on human rights, what if we push the government, whether in Burma or elsewhere, into the hands of our greatest geopolitical adversary? This concern is so longstanding. And I would argue this is also a case why a lot of the sanctions that the Congress passes tend to be mediocre and not just in enforcement, but even in terms of how they're calibrated. You have some acts, as you noted, the Jade Act that were incredibly precise and accomplished a great deal. You ha also have a lot of sanctions that tend to be pretty performative and slap a few wrists of political elites, but don't really change anything. So if, if, if I could ask you to lean forward a little more into that dynamic, how do you respond to that concern of if we lean too much into this issue of religious freedom, we're going to end up shooting ourselves in the foot strategically. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just kind of the old basic saying, it's never wrong to do the right thing. 
Now, the argument against it is, well, we'll throw them into the hands of the Chinese. Well, I got news for you. That one's probably already happened. They, and they don't want to be in the hands of the Chinese. This is the right thing. You stand for human rights. And remember, it's not just Burma you're dealing with. When the United States does something, the rest of the world is watching. We're, we're the leaders of the free world. We're the leaders of the world. China wants to step up and be the leader of the world, and they've got a system in mind of how to lead that world. And the authoritarian countries are all looking at that kind of going, you know, I kind of like some of the pieces of this Chinese model because it really plays into them being authoritarians. I, and I've heard this argument hundreds of times. I've been in meetings hundreds of times where people have said that, and it's always this kind of real politic, and you got to balance things and this and that. The problem of it is, number one, it's not you standing for your values. Number two, I've not seen it work. Number three, America is best when it stands on what, it, what is right and what is good and what is true. That's when we are best, and that's when we're global leaders. It hasn't failed us. Now, I don't have a problem you being real politic on economic issues, on other issues that don't go to the very core and essence of being a human. If you want to trade here, there, okay, you know, but this is a core human value. Religious freedom is a core central part of the dignity of every human being everywhere. It's agreed upon in the UN Charter of Human Rights. And then we just know it in our own soul that everybody is entitled to do with it what they see fit. You stand up on that. I think we're virtually unassailable when we stand on a value that is so central to the human experiment as this. The other piece is also true. As we have declined and not pushed religious freedom, the rest of the human rights go down too. This is the tide that lifts all boats. You get this one moving up and your freedom to assemble goes up. Your freedom of speech goes up. Your openness as a nation goes up. This one's been in decline and we have felt it broadly in the human rights project across the world that's been in decline and, and now is even directly under assault by a Chinese authoritarianism, which says there are community values that the leadership determines what the values are is a legitimate human rights point of view. And you're just going, community values, community human rights, and who gets to determine what those are? Xi Jinping? Well, I don't like the ones he's picked so far. I don't know why I would agree with it if that's the global pick for it. You know, and, and this, this is just such a central piece of where we are today in the world. We really have to get this right of standing for this individual dignity of the soul. I'm incredibly grateful to you for taking the time to talk about these issues because th this concept, the dignity of the soul, human dignity, spiritual capital, concepts that are often overlooked in the, inside of the beltway, but are not just incredibly relevant to foreign policy, but incredibly relevant to the human experience. And I'm grateful to you, not just for taking the time to speak with our listeners today, but also for your public service. Uh, in the state of Kansas, in the halls of Congress, and across the world. So, uh, Ambassador Brownback, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My honor. My honor. All the best to you. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. 
To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.